back to the Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. Well, Iran is back in the news a lot recently this week, especially as U.S. and European officials head back to Vienna for yet another chance at striking a deal with Iran's regime. Uh, sounds like crazy talk, but it is true. They're going back. They're no quit quitters. Uh, to help me break this down today, I call upon two of my good friends and colleagues. I'd like to welcome to them to the show. Jason Brodsky is currently the policy director at United Against Nuclear Iran, better known as Yuani. His research specialties include leadership dynamics in Iran, its uh, revolutionary guard, Shia militias, U.S. Middle East policies, and his commentaries and essays have been featured in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, National Interest, Newsweek, Wall Street Journal, The Hill, Jerusalem Post, Daily Beast, and CNN. Of course, I don't want to miss any one of those. And my good friend, Behnam Taliblu, who is a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, better known as FDD, focusing on Iranian security and political issues. And he has been featured in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, Reuters and Fox News, Associated Press, and many, many more. Welcome, both of you, to the show. I'd like to jump right into this. Um, I mean, we're going back to Vienna. Jason, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, a U.S. Uh, team is in Vienna as we speak. Uh, I think that uh, the Iranians keep dangling uh, uh, hope and optimism and meetings and new ideas uh, to uh, as a lure to get uh, U.S. and uh, EU diplomats to uh, continue this endless process. And that's part of their whole gambit, really. And I think it's unfortunate because we just seem to be in a very reactive state and uh, letting the Iranians drive the process here, dictating the time, the manner, the scheduling. U.S. diplomats are still not in the room. Uh, I was looking today at some of the scenes in Vienna uh, where uh, Iranian delegation was meeting with uh, of the Russian delegation. So you have a designated U.S. state sponsor of terrorism meeting with a country that is may in the future be a, a U.S. designated state sponsor of terrorism, along with a U.S. adversary, China, talking about U.S. sanctions relief with, a, with the United States not in the room. So that's quite unfortunate. It is quite unfortunate, especially when you know, there, there's really no logic here, right, Benham? You look at the, in, in the last 48 hours, I'm not even talking about the last 43 years, which obviously speak for themselves, but in the last 48 hours, Iran threatened to take out New York. They threatened to take out Israel. And the IAEA, which is the uh, nuclear watchdog of the United Nations, came out yesterday and said they're closer to a, a bomb than ever before. So what gives? Why are we going back? You know, I think this is all rooted in philosophy, the philosophy of the Biden administration, coupled, of course, with the very hyperpartisan nature of what the Iran debate has become in Washington, plus what we're seeing trickle out from that debate on the hyperpartisan side, as well as the very tough dynamics in Washington between internationalists and isolationists, and the Iran issue cuts right into the middle of that entire somewhat toxic debate. You know, on the one hand, there are people who simply want to resurrect this agreement because it's now become Democratic Party political dogma. It's the legacy of the Obama administration. Uh, it's the legacy of many people who are sanctioned skeptics and deal defenders. So in this sense, there's something of a political uh, you know, trophy to kind of resurrect and dust off and put back on the shelf. So 
the funny thing is the deal is not even really being sold as the counter proliferation deal anymore. It's kind of being sold in Washington as we speak as a as an oil deal, as a way for Washington to lower mm-hmm. gas prices. And that too does tie into the potential political vector or the political desire for this deal, meaning to potentially lower gas prices in advance of November when there's going to be midterms. So there's this right. outsized political driver for the Biden administration. The other is they don't believe pressure works. You know, you know, I believe both the adversary in Tehran, Khamenei, means what he says, but also I believe many American politicians and diplomats mean what they say. And for about a year and a half now, almost two years, you've had multiple folks in the Biden administration say that sanctions don't work, maximum pressure didn't work, and they mean it. And they think in their mind that pressure is not an impediment to the program. They think pressure is a driver of the program. Mm-hmm. And they put their money where their mouth is by pulling punches on the tough economic penalties that they had inherited, not only from Trump, but from Obama and from Bush, and perhaps most importantly, from congressional folks throughout those decades. And you see it manifesting on literally not just the battlefields of the Middle East, but at the negotiating table in Vienna. The Iranians understand that we want a deal for political reasons more than they need it for economic reasons. Therefore, we've been able to have this entire charade as Jason was saying, making the American delegation sit at the kitty table, making the American mm-hmm. delegation available at the beck and call and whim of uh, uh, the Raisi administration and the IRGC in Tehran. So ultimately, Iran remains in the driver's seat, but it's part and parcel not just of our policy solutions and the politicized debate, but it's because of how we've come to think, at least the current administration has come to think about the right. problem in Tehran. Right. And, you know, I want to get to the to the actual n- nuclear weapons part of this, and we'll come back to um, the appeasement and the policy uh, and the people of Iran, which, Ben, I want to get your thoughts on. But we did a piece at the Foreign Desk just a couple of weeks ago, and I, Jason, I, I believe you were featured in, in the piece um, with your insights about how the Iran regime has um, advanced most of the majority of its uh, nuclear program, meaning if you look at it as a, as, a, as a timeline, most of that has been completed under the year and a half that, that President Biden has been in office. Uh, and when you think about it, of course, what Betham um, alluded to in terms of being involved in the Russia-Ukraine situation and the midterms coming up, of course, that those are newer developments. But when Biden was running, campaigning, he promised to go back and do 180 on Trump's Iran policies. And that was just a matter of, 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 of mentality and dogma, as, as Behnam said. He just wanted to do a 180. And you know, Tehran took that as a signal of, let's shut down 27 or more cameras. Let's deny access to the inspectors. Let's let those centrifuges spin like crazy. Let's enrich uranium above 60%. We can crack down on the protesters on the streets because we have the upper hand. And in the meantime, we can keep on with the threats. We can keep supporting, you know, Hezbollah and the Houthis and be in Iraq and be in Syria. And, you know, the list goes on and on. You know, how serious are the threats when 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 Bob Malley says, who's going back to the negotiating t- t- table to sit at the, the kiddie table, as I love Benham's um, terminology for that. When we when B- Bob Malley himself says, Iran can potentially be weeks away, and he uses that to say we need this Iran nuclear deal. What's the flip side of that argument? I mean, if they are weeks away, can a return to the JCPOA even fix this? Or is it a, a moot contract? To, I mean, it is a moot contract to begin with. But at this point, how far from where you're sitting, how far have the Iranians come on the on their nuclear weapons program? How easy will it be for them not only to have a bomb, but to deliver that bomb? And how dangerous is this policy of appeasement? 
Well, I think you raised some important points, Lisa. And yes, it is true that uh, Iran has undertaken its most serious advances as we've had this uh, maximum deference campaign uh, for Iran over the past year plus. And uh, it's engaged in 60% uranium enrichment, advances on uranium metal, uh, you know, crossing red lines. taking out all the surveillance cameras, uh, crossing red lines that if you ask people 10 years ago uh, whether that would be a trigger for military action, many would say yes. But we still are a very reactive, uh, allowing Iran to dominate the negotiations. And I do think that President Biden made a critical mistake in the campaign by pledging to rejoin this nuclear deal. Uh, it's obvious as time is worn on that he does not want, in my view, to uh, invest a great deal of political capital on in, in resurrecting it. That doesn't mean that there aren't people around him who do. But I, I doubt Joe Biden personally, and I think we saw this in the reluctance to delist the IRGC as an FTO, has been willing to put in the elbow grease and uh, invest a great deal of time at a time when we have Ukraine dominating the headlines. We have mm-hmm. an economy that he's trying to get off the ground. We have a lot of other problems that he's trying to balance and narrow tight margins in the Senate. So instead of investing all this time in Vienna and trying to make a quote, good faith effort uh, to appease our European allies, I think we should be doing an Iran reset and doing the, putting the political legwork in Washington to come up with what would be an acceptable strategy that would get bipartisan support and uh, could be more durable in the long run in advance past a presidency. And that's where I think the focus should be in Washington. What, what would that look like? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful point, right? So, I mean, and you, you cut to the chase. That was going to be actually my final question um, is, is what should we do with, I mean, look, we go back and forth. It's very easy to sit here and say they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. But how can we curb the Iran regime I'm not sure this current administration wants to curb them, but let's just say the conversation is you do have bipartisan support on wanting to curb them. If that becomes the goal, what is the policy? We need to be walking and chewing gum on Iran at the same time. I think the days of using this nuclear file as a stranglehold uh, over the international community should be over. The U.S. should be actively, aggressively pushing back on not just the nuclear file, but the non-nuclear aggression, terror, support for terrorism. Uh, when Iran uh, initiated a very serious drone attack back in October 2021 in Syria on Al-Tanf, there was a non-response from the United States. And uh, they Iran is even taken to attacking uh, U.S. targets in retaliation for Israeli strikes. And that just shows you how they don't fear us anymore. And our deterrence has been lost. So I think that actively pushing back on all of these files, and I would add one more critical point. We have seen a series of protests in Iran over the course of the Biden administration. And what happens is, is that uh, people, the protests happen, people wonder where is the Biden administration? Why hasn't the president spoken out? Why hasn't the secretary of state spoken out personally about it? And then a little a belated statement is issued. And that's the end of the story. And I think we need to support the Iranian people more to achieve their aspirations. And one idea that I have is, you know, 
in really ramping up our public diplomacy, which is which is stale and very disconnected from what's pulsing on the streets of Iran. And so doing all of those kinds of things could garner a bipartisan support, but rejoining the JCPOA and employing a JCPOA policy, not an Iran policy, is the killer in terms of bipartisanship on this issue. It's a great point. And uh, Ben, what I wanted to ask you is, you know, throughout my career, I have said, you know, um, there's a language barrier here. Uh, and I don't mean in terms of, of actual language, but in terms of approach, right? So, you know, um, people in Washington who are very well-intentioned will sit there and talk about words like diplomacy and strategy and talks and negotiation and compromise and concessions. And the mullahs in Iran do not speak this language, right? That's, that's actually quite true. They speak a fundamentally different language. And I'm not just speaking about the language that we all share, Persian. I mean, they're speaking a fundamentally different language about the market dynamics. You know, this is not to self-orientalized, if you will, but about how to actually trade up, how to enter a negotiation with the poor hand and leave with everything you want and more. They speak the, the language of power dynamics, the hard power of the Middle East, wherein they must pull their punches, wherein they must double down. And if I could just provide a footnote before we kind of continue to unpack that to some of the great stuff Jason was saying. Uh, another friend of everyone here right now is, uh, is a colleague of ours, Andrew Stricker, who came to FTD by way of the ISIS. And part, again, of, of the problem is that how we think about the problem be kind of the, will circumscribe the range of policy options available to us. And, you know, what we discovered was that there were so many people who believed the Iran nuclear drama was born May 8th, 2018, with the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA. And as Jason was said, this is certainly not true. The Iranians were actually, for the first year, not even overtly choosing to violate. Then they moved into a policy of graduated escalation. And then they moved into a policy of significant escalation. And that significant escalation really did dovetail exactly with what Jason was saying, which is the September when Biden's uh, op-ed in CNN came out in 2020 to November with the election up until the inauguration in January 2021. And so the, it means that the adversary is reactive to what we're putting out there. And as we have our very divisive, very public debates about what a proper Iran policy should look like, and then socialize that around the world with our partners and our allies, we should remember that the adversaries are watching, waiting, listening, and coordinating their most likely Correct. and least likely responses as well. And this is not just true for Khamenei, it's true for Xi, it's true for Kim, and it's certainly true for Putin. Absolutely. There are many people who didn't believe Putin would do what he was doing, but alas, I think we put words in the mouths of our adversaries and we should let them speak for ourselves. But we should remember Absolutely. as we have our conversations, uh, they are listening to. Absolutely. And I think this was very evident in, in looking at the Arab Spring and dealing with um, nations and dealing with the obviously the Iranian regime and all of the our rogue adversaries is that there's no one size fits all solution for every nation. And there's no, you know, there's not one universal lens by which, um, especially our adversaries look at words like diplomacy and concepts of, of our foreign policy. But taking that into consideration, Behnam, um, a, how do you think the Iranian regime is reading um, the Biden administration, meaning how will they continue to take advantage of the status quo until the Biden administration is out of office? And with that, what is their end game? Is it going to be in the next you know, uh, two years or so, or will they continue short and long term? What do the Iranian 
regime? What do they hope to get out of the Biden administration? And what is their end game? So this is a, a brilliant point. Part of it is actually reading through the tea leaves, because again, we can only get into the head of Khamenei through the words of Khamenei, for instance, and we have to compare their statements as well as their actions, as well as some of the very public debates that they have, admittedly in Persian, between themselves and through an increasingly narrow, ultra-hardline elite. There is one kind of standard move that they have, which is as the nuclear program expands like this, you have the diminished monitoring. And ultimately what this inverse shape is trying to do is to take advantage of the risk aversion and of the distractedness and of the lack of a desire by the Biden administration to invest political capital, as well as to invest time and labor and resources into a solution to the Iran problem. And rather, they're looking for Washington to as poorly manage the Iran problem as possible. So they are happy that there has been a recrystallization of Iran as a merely nuclear threat rather than a regional, domestic, foreign mm -hmm. aggression, domestic aggression kind of threat. And in this sense, it's cross-domain. You know, there is no proper pushback on Iran in Iraq, for instance. Uh, you know, Jason mentioned the drone strike in Syria, but also in Iraq, the U.S. response ratio, admittedly even under Trump, but not, but it's definitely continuing under President Biden and, and going off the rails there. Uh, we simply tend to absorb the escalation by the Iran-backed militias. The same is true for much of the naval activity and, and maritime harassment in the Persian Gulf and Strait of Hormuz. So I think the Iranians understand that there is risk aversion, and what they've done is moved overtly towards risk tolerance. Part of it is because they read the administration so well. There's really been an evolution in the past decade, decade and a half, where before they would paint left, right, and center as through the broad strokes of extremism and hyperbole of saying everyone's an imperialist, everyone's a Zionist agent, and mm -hmm. that's, there's no fat on that. And then now, fast forward to when they were looking at the 2020 election, and I hate to make this political, but the Iranians knew enough about American domestic politics that they tried to spoof fear over the Proud Boys. Think about how much of an understanding the adversary now has of our own domestic fault lines. Uh, in the summer of 2021, the outgoing foreign ministry uh, then led by Zarif, gave a report to the Iranian parliament. Sadly, the Iranian parliament seemed to be briefed more on what was going on with nuclear negotiations than the U.S. Congress was from their own State Department. And in that long document, there was an assessment as to how the JCPOA is part of the political process in Washington. The adversary, again, I want to stress, is understanding us. So at a time when we are risk-averse, they are risk-tolerant. And the current commander of the aerospace force in Iran, uh, Amir Ali Hajizadeh, in a documentary that the regime put out in the aftermath of the missile strikes in response to the Soleimani killing, he said that he understands, that Iran understands, that Iran does not have the balance of capability, you know, military might of the United States. This is a revolution. You know, they went after Zarif uh, about a decade and a half ago for admitting that Iran is a weak conventional military power. But how he changed that, what, what uh, Hajizadeh said to change that, to put his own political spin on that, is that where Iran lacks the capability, it does not lack the resolve. And this is why we do fundamentally need a new Iran policy, because they understand in places where they can't go one-to-one, -one, if they go in early and they go in often, they can control the cycle of violence, they can control the escalation and get us to a path-dependent point and force us into a policy of begrudging accommodation on nukes, on human rights, on cyber, on illicit finance, on terrorism, on arms trafficking, on weapons proliferation, on missile testing, even on drones. You know, operating in the background right now is the horrific war in Ukraine, where I think a little under a month ago, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, said that Iran was going to be proliferating drones to Russia. You know, talk yes. about a historic shift 
for the three decades since the Cold War, the net weapons imports went this way from Russia to Iran. Now there's the potential for it to go this way. I mean, part of that is kind of the cost-effective security strategy the regime has. The other part of it is maybe the Russians are saving certain stocks of weapons in the way they're fighting in Ukraine. But coming mm -hmm. together now, if we botch the Iran problem, how are we going to then draw a straight line to contesting the PLA or really deterring Putin? This really is a test. And it's evidenced by the increased tempo of statements just this summer alone about how casual and blasé the regime is talking about moving towards a nuclear weapon, not even capability, just a nuclear weapon. And, you know, right. back, I think a decade ago, Obama talked about loose talk of war. Well, guess who's talking loosely of war right now? It's the regime officials. Yeah. You know, you made such a, a, an astute point of talking about how the Iranian regime has this, this concept or knowledge of, of our nuances, political nuances here. My question to you, Jason, is do, is, do those who are sitting in power in Washington understand the nuances about the Iran regime? And what I mean by that is this administration took the Houthis off the terror list. There's a push to put them back on. They're hesitating. Uh, Donald Trump pulled funding from the Palestinians in, in the, because of their pay to slay, because of their obviously using that, that funding for terrorism. The uh, Biden administration went right back to giving back that pay. These are all things that can be done in order to weaken the fangs of the Iran regime in the region, if that would be the goal. Now, my question to you is, is this because of the lack of understanding or is this by design in order to perhaps, again, appease the Iran regime to the point of signing that deal because they want to just get to the point of let's just play nice, let, let terrorism loose. We're seeing the after effects of what's going on in Afghanistan, pulling out and allowing the Taliban to now uh, shelter uh, Al-Qaeda operatives. Um, you know, it, it's just a mess. And you look at it and you're like, these people in Washington know better. They can connect the dots on their own. They don't need the three of us to do it for them or do they? Well, I think you raised some important points. I would say this. I think that this all comes down to the, as I was stating before, and uh, Ben, I'm also mentioned, the uh, lack of an interest in investing political capital to come up with a comprehensive, durable Iran policy. The president never talk, very rarely speaks about Iran. And when he does, it's very brief. You could tell he doesn't want to talk about it. And... Uh, I, I, for that, that really is going to have to change if uh, we're going to be able to tackle these kinds of threats uh, effectively. So in terms of understanding what's going on in Iran, I tend to believe, and I've, I've, I've felt this for a while, that uh, the media conversation and the political conversation in Washington is still looking at Iran through this 1990s-like construct of the reformists, versus the hardliners, and we've got to empower the more, the quote, moderate forces in Iran to be able to influence their behavior. And there's a focus on who is president, who is the foreign minister, who's the chief nuclear negotiator. But these people don't seem to grasp that they are not decision makers. They are not the ones who are driving the strategy. They are the implementers. Ayatollah Khamenei is the decision maker. So if you want to get inside uh, the the 
person's head who is the one driving the train. It's Ayatollah Khamenei and the, and the system-wide debate within the Supreme National Security Council, and also the people in Ayatollah Khamenei's office. I'm talking about Moshtaba Khamenei, his son. I'm talking about Asghar Mir Hajazi, his intelligence and security advisor, who, by the way, the U.S. views as the working brain, this is in his sanctions designation, of foreign affairs. You never hear about these players because they're down uh, below the radar. But these are the people I focus on um, mostly as an analyst. And uh, I think that there is a lack of understanding of these dynamics. It's all, it's all about Raisi, what his policy is, what vis-a-vis Rouhani. And I think we're misunderstanding that kind of dynamic. And so that's where it kind of gets frustrating to watch a lot of these um, uh, you know, debates take place. But uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, the Biden administration needs to understand that if it decided to change tax, if it decided to declare the JCPOA dead, I do believe they would find across the aisle a willingness to work with them uh, to come up with a strategy that doesn't change every four years. You have enough Democrats and Republicans in the Senate uh, who have an interest in doing that. Lindsey Graham, uh, Bob Menendez, these people want mm-hmm. to have a durable conversation. And for some reason, uh, we're still stuck in this 2013 to 2015 mindset with Iran, and we're trying to recreate a reality, a political reality, a mm-hmm. geopolitical reality, and an also technical reality as it relates to Iran's nuclear program that doesn't mm-hmm. exist anymore. So, so that's what uh, that's what the fundamental problem is at the end of the day, from my perspective. You know, um, also from from your perspective, I want to ask you about the apologists that are in Washington and New York, um, working around the clock to um, whitewash the regime's crimes and obviously overstate. Um, the uh, effect of sanctions on the Iranian people, where we know that the regime is obviously putting more of that pressure on the, or passing along the burden of of the economic penalties onto the people of of Iran. But yet they get invited to the White House. Um, They are, you know, they are, their their opinion is called upon way too often. Uh, And we know in the Obama administration and and continued now into the, the Biden administration, they have a very heavy voice that is perhaps um, eclipsing the opinions of these bipartisan uh, lawmakers that you mentioned in in having the president's ear. My sense is that might have been the case during the Obama administration. But I think during the Biden administration, uh, the conversation, at least from my perspective, has changed. I don't think that those voices have the degree of influence that they used to have. Uh, I think that there's a recognition that uh, among some people, not everyone, but among some people, that uh, that lens through which to view Iran and U.S. policy options is uh, very, very problematic, to say the least. So I, I do sense a change. I think that there are other organizations on the scene that have uh, really increased uh, the diversity within the conversation and the policy conversation in Washington, and I applaud that. Uh, But I think that it has changed. And I do think that it's interesting to compare the Obama to the Biden administration. I've always felt that if it were up to former President Barack Obama as to whether to delist the IRGC as an FTO, he would have done it. Joe Biden, slightly different, 
a little more closer to a Bill Clinton Democrat, I would say, in that sense. And so I do think the conversation has changed a little bit. He's not willing to invest uh, in Iran to the degree that the Obama, uh, President Obama personally uh, did. And so that- that, you that think that's a, Do you think that's a, a personal uh, choice or is that because of, and what, 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 what factors lead to that pivot? I think that uh, President Biden has a strong emotional connection to the state of Israel. I think that's undeniable. Uh, and I think you saw it in his trip. And uh, that was very evident. He was depicted and, and shown, you know, speaking to Holocaust survivors at Yad Vashem. It was a very moving moment. And I was proud to see him do that. Uh, but I, I think that he gets it in a way and he doesn't have a he's not as um, revolutionary in his foreign policy ideology that Obama as mm -hmm. Obama was. That doesn't mean there aren't people around Joe Biden who still have that ideology. They do. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm talking about the president personally. And I think the FTO debate was a manifestation of that dynamic. Speaking of revolutionary, Benham, I want to get your thoughts on the evolution of the protests in Iran. Um, you know, thank goodness to uh, social media for all of its uh, evils. The one good thing it has brought about is citizen journalism around the world, particularly for the Iranian people who are able to send us videos um, and get on Telegram and WhatsApp and send us all their, um, really the footage and really their feelings, tweeting and putting it all out there. What would you say has been, you know, the, the change that you have seen over the last uh, 12 or 15 years from, from the Green Revolution till now? And how do you think this has and has the potential to play a role in uh, the, the way that the world deals with the Iran regime issue? I think this is absolutely critical because when you talk about countries that invest time, resources, uh, manpower, uh, into an ultimate nuclear weapons program, people factor into that because no nuclear program in the world is not driven by these two macro level forces, which are status and security. And there has been this theme operating in the background generically in Washington that the nationalist impulse of the Iranian people will lead them to double down in favor of this regime and that they all seek a nuclear weapon for some hegemonic, you know, ridiculous Persian Empire related uh, the, the type of discourse anyway. And I think nothing could be farther from the truth as evidenced by some of the slogans you've seen from 2009 and beyond, but really starting since 2017, when the Iranian people through their words, through their deeds, poured out onto the street during peak periods of foreign pressure, kind of dispensing with the myth that uh, a little bit of rhetorical foreign support, that little bit of rhetorical foreign support that former President Obama did not even give in the summer of 2009 in what we all do call now the Green Movement or the Green Revolution, that even that is actually wins beneath the wings of the protesters rather than the kiss of death against some of these protesters. And whereas 2009 and even 1999, these two major critical reform movement related protests allowed the Iranian people to come out and but they did so in a way that tied their hopes to one faction of this increasingly dark regime. What you've seen past 2009 is actually a pushing past reform, directly coveting revolution. The Iranian mm -hmm. people are actively grabbing the third rail of revolution with both hands. And the problem is in Washington, the human rights debate, the democracy promotion debate continues to not only be siloed off, but continues to be kind of looked down on by people who work on security policy and foreign policy mm -hmm. as, is, as if this is not hard realpolitik kind of stuff. Uh, whereas in reality, this is the 
most proximate threat the regime faces every day. This is particularly why they've moved yes. to with the Aban protests in November of 2019, literally yes. shutting down, not the internet regionally, nationally, for six and a half mm-hmm. days, 1,500 people killed. You know, I like to say that the Washington Post has this tagline. Exactly. This Washington Post has this tagline that says democracy dies in the darkness. You know, in that time, it was also the Iranian people that were dying in the darkness. And right. it is critical now as great, you know, creative policy minds, academics, uh, public-private partnerships, uh, current and former intel, current and former, uh, you know, business elites talk about how to solve this policy problem. They get together to find out, A, how can the Iranian people communicate freely and with each other? And then B, how can they communicate that message about their plight and their struggle and their wants and needs externally? And when you look at demography, geography, slogans, willingness to run risks, and the willingness to actually and not the willingness, but the willingness of the regime to use violence against these new evolving forces, not just Mm -hmm. by, for lack of a better word, the rich kids of Tehran, but from the urban and rural poor, from the outside in, literally the people who live on the geographic and social periphery of a country with great potential that has been squandered. So this is, I think, really where the X factor is moving in the next few years. But unfortunately, it is not even part of the debate in Washington. And that's an original sin. Right. And the message that we've been echoing for such a long time is that that is the the people are the Achilles heel of this regime because that's how they came into power. They know that the force that can come out onto the streets and take them out. Um, And over, you know, what we're seeing in terms of changes is also a coming of age of the people, as you said. So it's not just contained to like the cool kids of Tehran. You know, we're seeing it in urban areas. We're seeing it among more religious, more conservative factions of the Iranian population, which is very important. We're seeing it among uh, different uh, sectors, women's movements, right, taking off their hijab very, very bravely. Uh, We're seeing it among, you know, farmers, truckers, bazaar uh, entrepreneurs. We're seeing it throughout uh, society. And we're also seeing a change in the slogans, being much more brazen, asking for, you know, death to the dictator, which we never saw before. But we're also seeing a couple of other things. One, uh, they're understanding that the regime is squandering their money. We, we haven't seen that before. It's more of a nationalistic movement now. It's like, you know, no to Lebanon and Gaza and yes to Iran. Um, and of course, the slogans are, are very cute and, and beautifully written in Farsi. They, they rhyme and I can't obviously uh, duplicate that for you here. But um, another thing that I have obviously noticed and, and we're trying to bring uh, to the attention of the world media because it's just fascinating is this faux nostalgia that the young kids have, meaning most of the kids that are on on the street are are younger than 42, three years old, which means they never lived under the Shah of Iran. But yet in their slogans, they are recalling this nostalgia for something they never lived through. So a lot of the slogans are saying, you know, rest in peace, Reza Shah, or calling for the son of uh, the Shah who lives in in the Washington, D.C. area to return to Iran. What do you make of that, Behnam? I think that that last point is absolutely critical. Unfortunately, if someone says that, which is an empirical finding, because if you look, it's an empirical finding based on anecdotal evidence, meaning if you survey social media and you survey all of the slogans that are being chanted, there really only is one external opposition figure whose name is chanted, yet Washington has some kind of allergy to this last name, given the history from during the Cold War period, doesn't even mention this point. I think this is also a bit of a deficiency, given the convening role at a bare minimum that the son of the late Shah could absolutely provide. But yeah, two of those critical slogans that, you know, you fall off your chair hearing, 
is A Shah Iran Bariya Iran or O O King of Iran come back to Iran or Reza Shah Ruhit Shah or Reza Shah as you said God bless your soul and these are things that intentionally grab that third rail it I, it it is transformative in the sense that they again never lived under these individuals they don't physically have that memory but they have that nostalgia that nationalist nostalgia and again when you talk about status it is obviously that the regime the the country's environmental health physical health uh, political security safety has been threatened by the islamic republic territorial integrity has been threatened by the islamic republic but the iranian people are a proud people and that status has taken an immense beating you know you went from all of the the markers where the regime was excelling in the past to being the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorists uh, you know the iranians absolutely deserve better and the thing is they know they deserve better and that's why uh, given the new non-political triggers for political protest be it environmental social religious even foreign policy triggers the downing when they shot the ukrainian airliner in january 2020 versus uh, the the economic drivers such as the ones we saw just this may with the wheat and the uh, other food related uh, price hikes due to subsidy cuts every mm-hmm. potential opportunity is that is afforded to the people they will come out voice their discontent the question is who's listening in washington absolutely um and i i want to go to both of you now for the final question because i think we want to we want to leave this conversation with something that is forward looking and um perhaps based on bob malley and everyone else is going to uh vienna they don't think this is going to go anywhere right they're giving it one last chance for some reason but let's say hypothetically it doesn't go anywhere and uh, the biden administration comes back with their leg between their tail between their legs as this as the saying goes um where do we go from here let's talk best case scenario worst case scenario from both of you jason i'll start with you well i think if the biden administration decides to declare the nuclear deal dead and uh decides with its european allies uh to uh invoke the snapback provision i think that they would be met with support in washington the president would be able to get support from across the aisle uh for that uh uh initiative and uh i think that uh that would be the best case scenario would be a reset on the Iran policy, as I mentioned before, and really trying to come up with something that's more durable, holistic, comprehensive. And it really would also track with the president's focus on putting human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy. And it would also come in fa- come in with this democracies versus autocracies uh, theme mm-hmm. that he has hit on during his presidency. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just fits in, really. And I think if he did that, if he pivoted and said, this is not working, I do think he would get a lot of support for it. Uh, but um, the worst case scenario, in my view, is to just keep this show going uh, for as long as possible. So maybe the Vienna talks uh, that are underway now don't result in something. The Biden administration will still keep saying we're, you know, we're trying to get mutual compliance with the JCPOA. Uh, we wait for Iran to make a decision. And, you know, Iran's perceived indecision has become their decision. That's 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 their that's their posture at the moment. And so mm-hmm. this continuing this endless process of eager mediators from the EU and Qatar trying to you know come up with these meetings and wasting U.S. diplomats' time, uh, you know, is the worst possible situation in my view. And uh, there's going to have to be a pivot. Ben, best case, worst case scenario. 
You know, I think I, I strongly agree with that. I just, a small riff on that is the most likely scenario. And it, it kind of dovetails from what Jason was saying with the worst case, which is all eyes are on Biden's plan B. You know, we've been talking about a plan B, an alternative approach for about a year, really since the fall of 2021, which is also the same time you've seen this crescendo of statements about a closing door, a diminishing runway, a closing window. There's every metaphor in the book has been employed. And then all of us, of course, remember all of our squandered weekends from January to February of this year, when everyone said the deal is around the corner, the deal is around the right, corner, and yet right. there was no deal around the corner, and the Iranians faked us out and duped us out and squandered our weekends once again. But uh, to, to, to a much more serious point, I think Biden doesn't have a plan B. This is painfully obvious. This is why the Iranians feel so comfortable with escalation. They know that in many ways this is rhetoric heat. Um, and so Biden has a plan C, in my view. And this plan C is to kind of let the talks atrophy, like Jason was saying, but never declare it dead. And the philosophy of this for them is that in their view, they think that this keeping the JCPOA on life support or really just keeping the corpse in the hospital without even a life support machine plugged in, to be grotesque about it, provides a dampener to Iranian escalation. I think the facts of the case don't bear that out, but I think that's the way they see it. That if you declare it dead, you invite further escalation. Why? Because in their mind, pressure drives the program rather than impedes or retards the program. So in this sense, there really is very little space for the Iranians to go up. They have really just 90% left. They have knocked out mm. so many technical achievements in the year mm -hmm. and a half that it's remarkable. You know, about a month and a half ago, there was a, a story, I think in the New York Times, talking about the Israelis focusing on weaponization rather than fissile material. Make no mistake, if this is true, and the string of assassinations that are non-nuclear in Iran can be tied to Israel, if this is true, uh, this would be a game changer because it would mean not a forsaking of weaponization, but a pa uh, for forsaking of fissile material, but a passive acceptance that Iran has mastered everything it needs right. on the fissile material front and that the West and the international community has failed to try to right. stop this march. So I, I have a pessimistic conclusion. The silver lining here, twofold, briefly. One is, as Jason said, the Biden administration has tried. It's tried very, very publicly. Not only would it receive bipartisan support, I think it would receive international support from the E3 to snap back those penalties that even put Russia and China on the same page as America as to a permanent arms ban, a permanent missile testing injunction, mm -hmm. no enrichment and no reprocessing on Iranian soil. Let's not mm -hmm. forget about our own accomplishments from 2006 to 2010. That was a win for multilateral diplomacy. We need to use that as a predicate to pivot towards multilateral maximum pressure and think beyond that. Think holistically yeah. about the nature yeah. of the regime and the nature of the problem. So let's hope yes. that, as the Iranians say, we can turn a threat into an opportunity, but uh, let's also not hold our breath. So, yes. Well, at least we'll win some favor from Saudi Arabia. That's for sure if we do do, do that. Uh, I thank you both. And uh, I encourage you all at home to follow them. And they are very often featured in our stories at the Foreign Desk. And if you'd like to subscribe to our weekly show on YouTube, you can go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftarian to sign up for our daily top 10 email on all things foreign policy and otherwise. You can go to foreigndesknews.com. We will see you all next week. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, 
Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.